wake up in the morning The alarm clock tells me when Pour a cup of coffee and hit the road again Find the nearest freeway Yeah, I got places to be That sounds like a good American Head to the office or the job side over the mill. Time to make some money, time to pay some bills. Cause they're charging me for things that I used to get for free. That sounds like a good American life to me. Tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good American life to me Now we got ships in the go Yeah, we got them in Japan Got boots on the ground Germany and Afghanistan And they got families and loved ones And kids they ain't never seen That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me Just try to catch my breath So I can tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good American life to me Waiting on a whistle When everyone will stop But they keep right on Telling us there's room Up at the top So I'm getting up tomorrow Guess that's how it's gonna be That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good I sound like a good American life to me. I sound like a good American life to me. Yeah, I think he means that ironically. It sounds like an American life. It sounds like a somewhat typical American life. But I don't know if it sounds like a good American life. That's Ed Dupa. 
uh, who is a friend of the podcast. I, I'd like to interview Ed at some point. Uh, maybe when I put together this podcast tour, I've been cooking up. I, I'm going to buy a van. In fact, uh, this week's guest, my Uncle Dan, uh, hopefully is going to help me purchase and outfit a van that I will then use to drive around the United States of America and uh, interview fascinating folks who are all over the place in that beautiful, tragic, strange land. Um, yeah, so that's Ed Dupa. I played that because it's the 4th of July. Uh, it's just after the 4th of July. And uh and also because the shit is hitting the fan in America. And, you know, I know some of you probably get annoyed listening to me bitching and whining about America. And But please understand that it's, it's motivated by grief. Every fucking day there's another massacre. I grew up in America. There's a lot about America that I love. It's it's the most beautiful. It, it contains some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And I've been all over this planet. And it contains some of the sweetest, kindest, most interesting people that you're going to find anywhere. But man, it's the end of the road. The shit's hitting the fan over there. And it's uh, it's very difficult to see. It's very difficult to see what happens when a culture is completely co-opted by corporate interests. And that's what's happened. The fundamental difference between European society, and I can't speak about Asian societies, because I, I don't understand them. I, I don't speak an Asian language. I can't claim to know what the fuck is going on in a place like Thailand or China or whatever. It's, although it certainly looks like China is is suffering from the same affliction as the United States, which is when a culture is completely dominated by corporate interests, it's no longer oriented toward wellness. It's no longer oriented toward taking care of people. It's all about profit. And the tragedy of that is that even the people who seem to be benefiting from it, you know, the, the 1%, the, the top of the heap, they're as miserable as everyone else. That's the problem. They still have to drink the fucking shitty water that they don't know is full of lead. They shower in it. I mean, okay, yeah, there's some millionaires who probably shower in Perrier, but the rest of them, they're showering in the water that comes out of the fucking pipe. And they're drinking the air and they're seeing the desperation in the streets. You know, Buddha was, became the Buddha when, as a prince, for the first time he left the palace. And I think he was, the, the story was that he was in the back of a, you know, a, some sort of a, chair, a chariot or whatever the hell they rode in ancient Nepal or wherever he was. 
And for the first time, he saw the suffering of the common people in the streets, and it broke his heart so much uh, that he gave up everything and, and wandered the earth for the rest of his life. Um, you know, first trying to figure out a way to alleviate suffering, and then when he believed he had to to spread the word. But um, yeah, it, it's very it's very difficult to see what happens to a culture when it's no longer oriented toward the interests of the people who live there, and that's what's happened in the United States. It's uh it's a country that is all about corporate interests. And the thing is, you know, Mitt Romney said, corporations are people, my friend. They're not people, but they are alive. That's my feeling. And the Supreme Court has given them personhood legally. Uh, it's even recently decided that corporations have religious rights. How does a fucking corporation have religious rights? How are dollars free speech? Well, that just shows that the Supreme Court is also dominated by the corporate interests. And we talk about this a lot in special interests. You hear it in the political conversations. But it, it, I see it as something more nefarious. Corporations are living things. We're, we're all afraid of fucking aliens coming from outer space and enslaving humanity or, or you know, artificial intelligence rising up and taking over. There are all these Frankenstein myths and fears in Western society. And there have been for since, you know, Frankenstein was written in the early 1800s. Uh, but the fact is that Frankenstein's monster is alive and has enslaved humanity. And that's what's happening in the United States. There can't be any rational gun laws. You can't have, you know, mental health checks. You can't have people who are on the no-fly list unable to buy weapons in the United States because there's profit involved. Now, you know, I might hear from some gun people. I do every time I fucking mention it. I'm not saying get rid of guns completely. I'm not just, you know, it's tiresome to have to explain that over and over again. I'm saying keep guns out of the hands of fucking lunatics, known lunatics. Could we do that? No, because that'll infringe on your fucking rights. Fuck you. Okay. We as a society should be able to keep guns out of the hands of lunatics, just like you keep driver's licenses out of the hands of people who drive drunk and smash into shit all the time. We should be able to do that. And we can do that. Right. We have credit checks. So we, we keep people who have shitty credit from borrowing a million dollars and then, you know, squandering it all in a casino. We have mechanisms for doing that. Societies are capable of doing these things. And the fact that we just have to watch while one lunatic after another just guns people down, whether that lunatic happens to be a fucking racist cop, which is what's happening in a lot of these cases, or a racist black dude with sniper rifle shooting white people because they're white, whatever. I know it's more complicated than I'm giving it, than I'm explaining here, but... Um, Anyway, when I bitch about America, it's sadness. I'm not trying to be an asshole. So 
Anyway, this episode is with, this is one of my favorite episodes ever, I think. I, I was just intending to listen to little snippets to remind myself of what Uncle Dan and I were talking about, and I ended up listening to the whole thing. I've been sitting here for an hour and a half listening to this um, this conversation with my uncle. He's one of my favorite people on planet Earth, and uh, I think when you listen to this conversation, you'll understand why. Um, I'm generally very hesitant to have family members on the show. As you've heard, I think only uh, there have only been one or two or three over the course of 190 episodes or something at this point. Um, but uh, I was visiting Uncle Dan and uh, I asked him if he'd be willing to to share some of his insights and experiences. And uh, he he was he was cool with it. So we did it. And, and I'm really glad we did. It was fantastic. I'm going to uh, leave it at that. I'm not going to clutter this up with any more of my bullshit or, you know, Amazon sales or whatever. Um, thank you for everyone who supports this podcast. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to be doing this and, and having it pay some of those bills that uh, Ed Dupa was singing about. Uh, if you uh, want to support the podcast, uh, please do through Amazon.com. You know how to do that. Uh, Patreon, fund what you love, whatever. Um, thanks for listening. And I am going to play you out with another song by Ed Dupa called Flag. And then the rest of it's just going to be me and Uncle Dan talking down in Florida. Hope things are going well for you. Thanks for listening. flag goes up as the sun comes down Jets go by before we hear the sound Rise to our feet as if to say Red, white and blue Till I die in day Flag waves high when the tax man comes. He says you gotta pay just to be someone. Yeah, it'll cost you plenty if you wanna stay. Red, white, and blue till you die in day. Now the flag hangs still When the wind don't blow They keep the TVs on To let the people know They gotta toe the line Yeah, there's a debt to pay Red, white, and blue Till their dying day comes down and they fold it nice and hand it to somebody's wife 
nothing to do Nothing to say It's red, white, and blue Till his dying day Flag goes up as the sun comes down and jets go by before we hear the sound rise to our feet as if to say red white till I die in day red white till I die Here I am in hot, humid, sunny Naples, Florida, with my Uncle Dan, who is, uh, has always been one of my favorite uncles, not to uh, offend any other uncles who may be listening. <laughs> uh, let me apologize immediately for any slurping sounds that you hear. I've got a fresh cup of coffee, which I definitely need to be drinking, because I was asleep about 15 minutes ago late afternoon. The sun here wipes me out. This is killing me. Anyway, I'll, I'll do an intro before this, so I don't really need to do an intro now. We can just okay. chat. So anyway, thank you for doing this, Uncle Dan. First of all, Florida is not humid. It's sultry. Sultry. I thought, I thought only people were sultry. No, no, the weather here is sultry. It's hot and sultry. What's the difference between humid and sultry? One sounds better. <laughs> the, the the content of the water in the air is pretty much the same, but right. uh, I like sultry better. I see. It's a semantic distinction. Yep. Um, so, did we decide? Are you are you going with Uncle Dan? Are you uh, you're cool with people knowing you're my uncle? Or do yeah, you, I'm I'm right. I'm cool with that. Right. I'm All cool right. with that. All right. So it's it's unusual for me to have anyone from my family on this podcast because. I just feel like there's... We're a pretty uninteresting group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there is that. A bunch of losers. <laughs> a bunch of boring losers. Uh, no, there's that. But, but there's also, it just sort of feels, uh, it's a strange thing. It's like the podcast is one part of my life that I try to keep. It's separate from the other, you know? It's a, I had Cassie on for the 100th anniversary, uh, the 100th episode podcast. Um, but, uh, and then Charlie I had on my... Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Charlie, was he good? He was good. It was years ago, though. He was, you know, 11, I think, mm -hmm. or 10, maybe. And he was just um, one of those 10-year-olds who sort of knew he was a 10-year-old, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, and could comment on that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But other than them, you're you're the first uh, you're the first grown-up family member. Blood relative, huh? Blood relative, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So right. Uncle Dan is my mother's little brother. My mother was the oldest of her group of siblings, and uh, still is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doesn't I matter much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, you were born when? 1942, did you say? 1942. I often talk in this podcast, I, I, I bitch a lot about American society, as you can imagine, knowing me. I bitch about it off the podcast as well. But one of the things I talk about is how um, like isolated kids are and, and parents and families in general and how kids really need lots of different uh, role models as they grow up and not just mom and dad, you know. And uh, you were always a role model for me because you were different than, from my dad. You know, you guys sort of came at life from two different angles. Yeah, he was very traditional uh, growing up. He loved sports, loved uh, baseball, football, followed sports, played yeah. sports. Right. Uh, I was always kind of the maverick, uh, woodsy, uh, skiing, hiking, uh, building um, race cars with my dad's lawnmower engine, things like that. I, I was yeah. not a... You were a hands-on kind of guy yeah, with that. But yeah. uh, never liked sports. And, uh, to this day, I just don't follow any kind of sports. Um, but I, I loved to scuba dive. Uh, I skied for, for years and years. Were you a ski instructor at some point or ski model or something? I was like a that? ski model one year for some, uh, for Seventeen magazine or something. But uh, <laughs> no, I was, I was yeah. never, um, never officially in the ski business. I just, uh, although when I taught high school, I commandeered one of the school buses and turned it into a ski bus and started a ski club in school and managed to convince the principal that every Wednesday we should take the school bus, ski bus, and uh, took all the kids down to uh, North, uh, was it, uh, hell, I forget the name of the town, but anyway, it was uh, a beautiful ski hill uh, south of where we lived. That was in upstate New York? Upstate New York, right. yeah. Up in the Adirondacks. In the Adirondacks. Yeah. And uh, took all the kids skiing, and instead of going to school in the afternoon, that was my official ski title. Yeah, that must have done wonders for your popularity at, with the kids. Oh, it did, yeah. And what were you teaching there? I taught uh, physics and industrial arts. Um, and I taught industrial arts to senior boys and girls and physics to senior boys and girls. And what is industrial arts? Anything that deals with uh, physical skills, um, woodworking, um, Welding, painting, uh, making furniture, uh, fixing cars, um, learning electricity, uh, plumbing, anything yeah. of that nature. Yeah, you know, I wish, talking about you as this sort of, you know, uh, additional role model, I wish I'd spent more time with you when I was a kid because those are the skills, and I've got very little. I just have a smidgen of those sorts of skills, but they've been so useful and saved me so much money and brought so much um, satisfaction when I was able to fix something rather than taking it in, you know, or, or throwing it away and buying a new one. It just gives you so much satisfaction to be able to see how something works and, you know, put it back together and find the flaw. I mean, we've been spending the last three days trying to find <laughs> the flaw in your yeah. truck. <laughs> it hasn't been so satisfying. It's a two-edged sword because yeah. When you develop the skills to a certain point, then you won't use outside help. Right. As you notice with the car, it's still sitting in the driveway, and yeah. it should have been towed to the shop three days ago. It's, it's so electronic, it's beyond my comprehension, and I really should recognize that and, and not spend all the time on it. But yet, I'm compelled to exhaust everything that I know about it to see if I can fix it, you know? Right. 
And in the house, I mean, I build everything my, myself. I do all electrical, all plumbing, um, all design, everything. I mean, just uh, just from the skills I picked up over the years. Yeah. And, and, you know, and you worked with not only teaching that, but you were like flipping houses for a while, right? Yeah, flipping houses. Uh, the whole time I was married to uh, Janie, uh, we would buy houses and fix them up and, and sell them. And um, we took some old buildings in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, turned a mayor's office into a bed and breakfast, turned a general store into a bed and breakfast. Um, and it was very successful and a lot of uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it was it was nice to see the one bed and breakfast to this day is still one of the, the best in Annapolis, and uh, the people absolutely uh, love going there. So it was a lot of satisfaction in it. Yeah. Do you think it, is that kind of stuff uh, still viable as uh, a way to make a living? It is flipping houses is in certain markets but now this market for a while flipping houses would work but now the market is such that end buyers are the only ones going in there aren't investors there aren't people that want to take a house and flip it one of the reasons i wanted to have you on the podcast is i i get a lot of um emails from young men sort of saying hey you know here i am i'm in high school i, I think i read you one the other day yeah yeah very uh, disenchanted young man that, yeah uh, didn't like, didn't like much anything. <laughs> well, he liked yeah. cooking and he liked martial arts. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so he sound he sounded like a guy who had interests. He had, you know, he was curious and and uh, intelligent, but he fucking hated high school. Yeah. And from what I've heard about American high schools, I'm not surprised. I think a lot of people really dislike the experience. Um, so what I what I was saying is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that these guys write to me and they're they're you know looking for some guidance and one of the things i often say to them is learn a practical skill learn a skill that you can use uh in different parts of the world because a lot of them want to travel that's because that's mm -hmm. part of the appeal i guess of listening to this podcast that i talk about traveling and stuff um and i i remember meeting people on the road like an electrician and you know he would be useful in nepal that guy's useful yeah. You know, uh, even if it's just helping the people in the in the guest house he's living in, he sees they want to string some lights and he can show them how to, you know, work with the fuse box without burning the place down, you know. Um, but they, these practical skills that are useful anywhere in the world just seem to be um, so much more important than, you know, an associate's degree in communications or whatever the fuck that is, you know. Well, most schools offer some sort of a uh, industrial arts. I think they have another more sophisticated name for it now. But a lot of parents don't want their kids to be taking auto mechanics or taking woodworking or taking uh, welding class because it, it doesn't sound it's blue you know, collar. college bound, you know. Right, but aren't blue collar jobs the most secure jobs right now? I mean, it doesn't an electrician or a plumber... Oh, they, an auto mechanic. Yeah, they're in high demand almost everywhere in the country. And they're making good money. They make good money, and they can uh, travel aboard. Most boats have a whole um, group of electricians, plumbers, um, welders, uh, carpenters, all aboard, and they're paid uh, quite well. Plus, they live for free on, on board ships, travel the world. And um, 
you know, they're they're very valuable. They're good jobs. Yeah. And uh, you can learn those skills in high school. And when I went on to college, I took an industrial arts uh, course in in college also, uh, printing of all things. I learned how to print and lay out uh, print pages and uh, got how to design. You know, we did the uh, the egg drop where you had to design something that would keep an egg from breaking when you dropped it from a three-story building. Oh. And, uh, all these uh, engineering uh, exercises. Um, and if a kid has any feeling that, that that would be of interest, that's probably a better direction to go than, as you say, uh, journalism or uh, what's the other one that there's no job for? Political science. Political science. English. Or, um, <laughs> economist. <laughs> it yeah. just... There's no place to go once yeah. you're out. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, and I think it's it's one of the the, the sort of uh, secrets of American society because you know all through high school I pumped gas, for example, you know, in different auto garages. And I remember every one of those guys was pulling down serious money, not only because you know it's a lucrative profession, but also you know they've got these customers is some old lady who's got a Cadillac she's only been driving and she wants to sell it I'll take it off your hands and mm -hmm. you know he gives her a couple thousand bucks for it and he you know changes the interior and sells it for 20,000 and so there's all the side stuff going on they always had new cars circulating coming in selling lots and and you know and you could see that the sort of um, you know the professionals who were coming in to get their cars worked on looked down on them as working class yeah, but in the end, they they were probably making more money and had you know more control of their destiny than those people who went and worked in offices did. And more importantly, they're doing what they liked. Yeah, you know they they loved the cars. I mean, they looked at the cars that they either fixed or uh, customized and were driving, and they were just uh, yeah really satisfied with what their lives were. Right. Well, that's one of the reasons you don't want to get rid of this car you've got because you've worked on it so much. It's yeah, it's you know, 27 years old. It's a, it's. Yeah. A, I, th I look at it and I think it's one of the um, prettiest cars ever ever produced. I just want to keep it and drive it. Right. I don't have any desire for anything newer or faster or right. Um, you know, more modern. So so let's talk about your life. My my sense of you is that when you were young, you were a troublemaker. Uh, not in a not like looking for trouble, but you got into trouble. You were chasing girls. You were racing cars. Wasn't there some story about you stealing a car and going across state lines and some shit like that? Or yeah, something like that. Well, back then, <laughs> statute of limitations is gone. People I'm left sure. their keys in the car all the time. Uh, okay. And it was just we we looked at it as as a a transportation system. Uh, we never stole cars for money or to right. resell them or to hurt them or wreck them. Joy rides. We would take them to where we were going and then just leave them there and then either take that car or, or another available one back to where we started. It's like a car share service. Car share. They do it now with bicycles. Uber. You know, <laughs> exactly. It was early Uber <laughs> without the driver. <laughs> Uber yourself. But uh, yeah, I did kind of get caught in one of those... Uh, um, escapades, but uh, it wasn't serious. I mean, fortunately back then, I don't have to carry the um, title of felon throughout my life. You know, it was just a 
appearance in court, a slap on the wrist and uh, an admonishment not to do it. And uh, that was it, you know, so mm. um, I became far more careful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Your Honor. Well, I promise not to get caught Be again. Careful. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. We weren't bad in that way. We weren't, we we weren't fighters. We didn't uh, yeah. try to hurt anybody. We didn't destroy anything. Right. Um, I mean, we went out of our way to to do things. If we if we'd help people, but you know, we take cars because we absolutely were fascinated by cars. Mm. And then we built cars. Our dates back then were simply taking the girls to the shop and let them sit on the back seats of the cars that were lining the walls and, and we worked on them so we could race them at the dirt track on Saturday night. And uh, the girls kind of liked it. They thought it was, you know, nice to be involved in uh, car racing. And um, so it was, a, it was fun and it was, it was trouble just because you were not the college-bound um, player, football player or or a basketball player, you were sort of looked at as as an outlaw, you right. know, as outlaw bikers would be now. We were just outlaw right. car people. Near do wells. Yeah, yeah. And so we're talking about. You're born in '44. We're talking about the '50s, mid '50s. '42, yeah. '42. Yeah. Okay. So you were 18 in 1960. <clears throat> yeah. Right. So you were right in the thick of it, age-wise. You're 18 in 1960. So you. Elvis hit when you were in your early teens. Yeah. And so did you feel that sort of transformation happening in American society? Did you feel like things were shaking? And oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Elvis, I mean, he shook things up, you know. I mean, first, he wasn't allowed on television below the hips, yeah. below the waist. And, uh, you know, you saw that evolution where we became a little bit more uh, tolerant of, of music and of dance and of... Uh, right. uh, different ideas of, of what uh, entertainment was. Um, yeah, I mean, we had Little Richard, we had uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, we had all those great performers that uh, I think had a vitality that uh, I don't really see much of in today's music. But again, that's generational, you know, I just, I like the older music better. You know, I think about that. I, I, was, I talked about that on a recent podcast where I was with a friend of mine and we were, you know, doing the sort of two old men griping about things, you know, things used to be simpler back before the internet and all that. And, you know, I, and we were laughing because we realized how cliched we sounded. But, but then there's also the point that things actually were simpler. You know, it's not just a cliche that everyone thinks things were simpler when they were younger. Society has been getting more and more complex for the last few centuries. Uh, steadily so each generation legitimately could look back at their youth and say things were simpler because in fact they were you know in some ways but in some ways uh, more complex take the idea of going to someone's house for the first time now all you do is say oh give me your address and you punch it into your your phone and you're there Back then, I mean, they had to give you the right turns, the left turns, you know, turn by the red car, da, da, da. <laughs> That's true. I'll be the fourth house on the right, and I'll leave the light on, or I'll blink, the, you know, yeah. you went through that. That's true. Um, how did you hook up with your friends? Right, no uh, cell phones. No cell phones, uh, pay phones by the side of the road. Yeah. Um, we had, 
a party line in the house. And there were like seven families on the road all on that same party line. So you'd pick it up and you, if you heard someone talking, you had to put it down and wait till you heard a, a tone and then an operator would come on and you know, you'd give her the number and uh, it, it was very, uh, very difficult to, to communicate. So when you had to set up where you were gonna get together, you really had to, uh, I don't know how, I look back and think, how the hell do we ever know where, we, where everybody was? Right, yeah, and if yeah. your car breaks down, what do you do? Yeah. You're like, you're stuck there. You... Where now it's OnStar, you know, you push a button and someone uh, comes on your, your uh, sun visor and, and uh, sends help. Right. So in some ways, the complications have really eased uh, getting to where you're going, knowing what the weather is. I mean, we never had a slightest idea that a storm was coming. Mm. Where now you, you can look on your phone and you know when the next rainstorm's gonna hit. Yeah. So uh, complexity in, in our society, but yet that's offset by uh, really helpful things that have come along. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah, especially for moving around, booking rooms and car rental cars and you know, I remember going to travel agents and you know. Yes, deal yeah, and you never think of doing that. <laughs> no. um, yeah. But one example was uh, flying. I learned to fly very early when uh, there were not a lot of navigational aids. Radios were very poor. Right. And weather was something you had to go into a, a flight service station and they would take off reams of paper with all these isobars and lines of da-da-da. You know, you'd have to uh, calculate the, the highs and the lows and the cold fronts uh, slipping under the, the warm fronts. And it was very difficult to calculate where you would expect weather. Uh, it was difficult to calculate your, uh, uh, your direction of flight and your destination. Um, and when you got to an airport, uh, it was difficult to get into the right pattern so you could land at the airport. Mm. Now that all is done uh, instantly on computers and uh, pretty much on your cell phone. I mean, you right. look at your cell phone, you know damn well whether you're gonna fly into a, a cell of uh, convective activity or, or nothing. Pilots, who you're safer until the technology fails and then they don't mm. know what to do. Well, that's true, yeah. Yeah. If it fails, but even failure, the, the backups, um, almost every plane now has a backup system to back up one, you know, a battery powered or one that sits there and charges itself. And if you have a failure, um, I had a GPS in my plane that literally would replace almost every other instrument in the plane if I needed it. And it was, was good enough that it would keep you straight and level and get you to your destination. Mm. Um, and even more so now, some of the planes have backup parachutes where if, if yeah. everything fails, you you pull a big red uh, handle and a, a full, whole plane parachute comes out and you land safely and, uh, you know, lose the plane maybe, but save your life. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned, how old were you when you learned to fly? It was... Uh, 66, so what was I, uh, 42, 18, no, it was long, 28? No, uh, no. 24. 24. I think. Yeah, because I was just married a couple of years, yeah, 24. 24, and you were in upstate New York then? Yeah. 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 And you, you had always wanted to fly, was that the 
or was that just an extension of your fascination with cars and motors and no I always wanted to fly I had always uh, as a kid I used to you know wear a cape and jump off walls and <laughs> I would dream about flying and um, you know it was just it was always a fixation to fly and yeah. every time I saw a plane I would uh, think about how exciting it would be right and you were in the service right I was. I went in the Navy to be a pilot, but my eyes were not good enough. Ah. So I ended up being in the Army in the Medical uh, Corps. And when did you, did you, you got drafted or you joined? Or? I actually joined. I was going to be drafted even though I was married. So I, I joined and uh, I, I never had to leave the country though. I was set to go to Vietnam and we ended up being sent to Fort Devens, Massachusetts instead. And my MOS, which is Military Operational Specialty or something like that, was a Field Medical Equipment Specialist. And when we got to Fort Devens, which was a field hospital, they had no such MOS need. So they put me in the newborn nursery. So I actually helped deliver babies and, um, you know, uh, after they were born, put drops in their eyes and take blood and everything like that. And that was the, what I did in the uh, in the medical corps when, at Fort Devens, just delivered babies. <laughs> you go into the military, there's a war raging. Yeah. You know, the, most guys are being sent off into a fucking meat grinder where they're facing death, and you end up delivering babies. Yes. That's about the best luck you could possibly have, I would say. What's it like to deliver a baby? It's really interesting. It is really, uh, you know, I don't consider... I mean, you had doctors there, right? Oh, yeah, we had doctors. But, you know, these are all young guys and young girls that are nurses, and everyone's very easy about it. And if it was a, a normal birth, and, and they had some what they called explosive deliveries, where uh, they the mother would start to push and all of a sudden the baby would just fly right out and oh, actually really? like, almost like catching a football. Really? Yeah, the baby would come out and the only thing holding it back was the umbilical cord and you had to catch this slimy, slippery little baby. <laughs> <laughs> so so what was your role? You got doctors, nurses, and you. Who the hell are you? You're some like army guy. What are you doing in the room? Well, I was a corpsman, which, you know, is a nebulous title. And... Um, that you'd just they you know you'd suit up and <laughs> suit up and go and go in the room put on your your leather <laughs> catcher's mitt or what <laughs> and the doctors you know they'd say you want you want to catch this one you want to you want to you know if it was difficult they'd clear the room right you know if it was like there's any uh, problem with uh, the baby not getting oxygen or if they had to go back and do a C-section or something then it became a, a really serious uh, operating theater. But a normal delivery, uh, everyone was just happy and laughing and clapping, and uh, it, was, it was really an enjoyable thing. And who were the women? Uh, they were mostly dependents of uh, servicemen. Ah, okay. Yeah. Right. And uh, the babies, uh, once, once they're out and the cord was cut, we would take the baby and uh, scrub them down completely, head to toe with Fizax. Scrub them? Scrub them. Like with a brush? Yeah, a little soft brush, you'd scrub them, because they were all slimy. <laughs> they were, I mean, they are all slippery, slimy little things. You'd scrub them down, Yeah. 
and you put drops in their eyes because uh, you, it was to keep them from getting some eye infection that yeah. was uh, common. Right. And then we would put little uh, triangular razor blades in their heels because that was the only place they had enough blood pressure that you could get blood to be, be tested. So uh, you just, <laughs> poor little baby, you'd stick this little triangular razor blade in its heel and then you'd put the heel on a blotter until the, the circle on the blotter filled up with uh, their blood. That right. was enough for them to test. Right. And then uh, you would just uh, wrap them in something and take them back to their mother. And in the military hospitals, the baby always stayed with the mother. There was no nursery. There was just like a crib right beside the mother. Right. So that was good. So for f how many babies do you think you processed this way? Mm. Probably about 18, 20 babies. So for 20 mm. people, you were the first human being really in their life. Yeah. Like you were the first human contact. I was the one sticking <laughs> needles a needle. in their heels. <laughs> I was that big bastard sticking needles in their heels. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Probably little, all traumatized little babies running around. Yeah, on one foot, hopping <laughs> <laughs> around. Yeah. Wow. That's a, see. There you go. I didn't know that about you. I knew you were in the service, but I had no idea you were traumatizing babies. And the delightful part of it, I even had to teach some mothers how to breastfeed because they would take their baby and just slam its poor little head against their boob. And of course the baby's, you know, trying to breathe, let alone right. uh, suck on a nipple. Right. And uh, then the, the baby wouldn't eat and the mother was distraught. And uh, in one case I went and I told a nurse, I said, you know, a woman's crying because the baby won't feed. She said, well, Tell her how to do it right. I said, I don't know how to do it right. I forget that whole thing. <laughs> it was years ago. <laughs> a long ago. time ago. And she said, just tell her to put the baby's head close to the nipple and just relax, and the baby will do the rest. So I went back to the room, and I said, just get that little nipple right out here and uh, you know, put your baby's head by and just relax and you know, stroke your baby's head and just uh, let him stay there. And, and sure enough, within a few minutes, you know, he kind of, moved here and there and uh, I don't know through sense of smell or I don't know what the the attraction was but boom all of a sudden he's on the nipple and just mm. happy as can be right and I thought damn I'm pretty smart right <laughs> it's interesting so they've got a guy with really no medical training teaching women how to breastfeed babies times have changed huh yeah, yeah. I mean I don't think you'd be anywhere near a, a woman you know, delivering babies now, or you know, anyone. No, absolutely not. It's, no. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't have the right credentials on my my uh, security card to, yeah. to get anywhere close to a baby. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, here's a question for you, because I, I another thing that you and I share is a is a sort of unapologetic love of women and um, and sensuality and all that and. Uh, did that experience of seeing the bloody, gloppy realities of birth affect your sex life at all? No, not at all. It, it's just you don't even think of it in the same uh, context or area. It just that was a it was a interesting. I wouldn't say beautiful because it was you know kind of bloody and and. Um, but it was interesting. I, I don't believe in miracles, but it was uh, uh, something that uh, is amazing mm. to see. Right. But no, it had no uh, 
no effect on my sex life. Um, the girls, you know, in that condition certainly aren't uh, sexual objects at all. Right. Uh, yeah, once back in their room when they have, the, have their boobies out, they're looking pretty sexy. <laughs> yeah. See, that's why you wouldn't be allowed near them anymore. Right, exactly, yeah. 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 Um, you, you mentioned you don't believe in miracles. You were raised uh, in a Catholic, a strictly Catholic family. Right, right. right. And when did that stop working for you? It never really worked. Mm. You know, I, I was always, I just couldn't grasp the concept of having to believe everything on faith. Right. Uh, I, I always felt if there was something to this religion thing, there should be some proof somewhere. You know, someone dropped the ball and, and proof slipped out, but there's none. And I just always thought, this is just, it's just not right. So even when you were, you know, 5, 10, 12, you know, before critical thinking really kicks in, you weren't, you weren't buying it? You weren't into the, you know, the frankincense and the myrrh and the outfits and all that shit? When they first started telling me about hell and how incredibly easy it was to commit a sin yeah i just i was scared i was scared that i was doomed to hell because it seemed everything that i did uh thoughts you know if you have this thought if you have this uh, you didn't even have to hurt someone or have sex i mean you just had to think about it and you right. were committing a sin so i that scared me until i started realizing you know i really don't believe that's the end i'm facing um, right. And to this day, I mean, I, I've never wavered from that. And, you know, I've, I've looked at uh, death pretty close these last couple of years. And, uh, you know, everyone says, well, are you, you going to hedge your bet on it? It's like, no, I'm not. I, I just don't believe that that stuff exists at all. What, are you comfortable talking about the oh. last couple of years? Oh, yeah. 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 So essentially, you came to Spain to visit me, and one of the many things that has impressed me about you over the years, you came to Spain to visit, and it was like, I mean, did you get a phone call when you were in Spain with the diagnosis, or did you get it right before you came or something? I got it before I came um, that I had prostate cancer. Right. And they said, you know, you got to, uh, it's, it's a strong enough cancer, uh, that you have to have, you have to do something. You need some sort of treatment. Well, that was like days before you days. Yeah, but you know, I already had the tickets. Right. <laughs> and uh, right, uh, my beautiful girlfriend from Germany was going to join me there, and uh, there was just no way I was going to miss my trip. Yeah, and then you and I drove around for I don't know about a week or something up in the Pyrenees and yeah. along the coast, and you never, I don't remember you even mentioning it once, unless I brought it up. No, it's just, it's, it's not something that, that scares me. I mean, it's, you know, you hear cancer and people get so scared and they feel their life has been taken from them. But right. uh, uh, my whole thought was how I was going to deal with it. The doctors in town wanted to use the facilities in town that they owned or, or were responsible for. They wanted to do a Da Vinci operation, or they wanted to do uh, standard radiation. Uh, but I researched it online and found out that there was a, a better method called uh, 
proton therapy, which is a type of radiation that is using radioactive matter rather than radioactive energy. And because it's matter, it can be controlled. It can be mm -hmm. stopped and started, and um, it's much more precise than uh, energy, which when it enters your body, it's going to leave at some point. Right. So I was able to research that and find a facility in Jacksonville and uh, be treated with the uh, uh, proton therapy and had a very successful outcome. The prostate cancer was removed. I've had no ill side effects. Um, you know, uh, I don't have to wear Depends or I don't have uh, urinary issues. And uh, So you wear the Depends just because you like them? Just because I like them. Yeah. I, you know, I like, I like the... <laughs> I think the way they look, they look good on you. The feel of that, that plastic rubbing up and down your leg. Well, I've got some butt paste if you need it. <laughs> Sorry, inside joke there. Um, okay, and, and actually going back before, so you had the motorcycle accident when? 2008. 2008. Yeah. So 2008 was a rough year for you. 2008 was the year that everything started to, I had all these medical issues. I had the motorcycle accident, I had the uh, prostate cancer, I had the open heart surgery. Uh, you know, I mean, 2008, 2009, 2010, it just kept right. uh, one thing after and another. And when was the whole financial crash here in Florida? Yeah, about the same about time. About the same time, yeah, right? About the same time. Because you had like five apartments and then... Yeah, I lost them all. Lost them all. Yeah. You were you were preparing for retirement, getting, you know, a lot of the money you'd made that flipping was my houses, nest egg. Yeah. your nest egg, yeah. it was all set up and like the shit hit the fan. Oh yeah, yeah, hit hard. Yeah. And um, yeah, I didn't, and now in normal times, if that was... 30 years ago, I would have said, well, fine, okay, let's you know, yeah, get I'll started again. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, just the timing of it and all these medical issues and uh, kind of the lack of uh, youthful energy, I just uh, thought, geez, I can't do this again. Yeah. And the, the motorcycle accident, you were, was it you were making a turn and the oncoming car didn't see you? No, I was going straight. I was oh, on a oh, he turned. straight through road. He made an illegal left turn at an intersection and uh -huh. just uh, was right in front of me. I just bent his car right in half and I flew over the car. And you were on a and, Harley? On a Harley, yeah. yeah. You flew over the car and you remember it? No, no. The whole memory of the accident was uh, blanked uh, from about... Um, 20 minutes before, I, oh, right. I, I had remembered getting on the bike, I was on my way to Home Depot, and my last memory was looking up saying, oh, it's going to be a really nice day. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, Famous that, last words. That was misplaced. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a great day. <laughs> what a good day to die. And the next thing I knew, there was this guy with big earmuffs on, bending over, shouting at me asked me if I knew my name and I'm in this stretcher inside a helicopter and I, I didn't know where I was or what was going on but I was mad at him for yelling at me because I said of course I know my name what the hell are you doing here anyway you know and uh, then the, the, the surroundings just became clear to me it's like my god I'm in a helicopter with this medical guy and then I realized that you know I had uh, 
road rash, terrible road rash from the, the accident. And uh, I was trying to feel all my limbs and everything to see how I was. So, and you, uh, f you knew you'd been in an accident at that point? Well, then he told me because, yeah. well, I, first he said I was in an accident. And I said, no, I'm, I'm home. I, you know, I just, I, I couldn't grasp that I had been in an accident and, and didn't uh, participate in, in my mind. Mm. So it, it was hard to grasp it. How could that happen? And I don't know anything about it. Right. But to this day, I have absolutely no conscious memory of, of that accident at all. Yeah. And so the the uh, the effects were that you lost, uh, for a while, pretty much all use of your right arm. Is that right? Yeah. They call it a, br a brachial plexus uh, injury, where I had uh, pulled and broken brachial plexus nerves coming out of my spine to uh, my right extremities. Mm. But the arm was the one affected the most. I just had no no movement at all. Yeah, no brain damage or anything. <laughs> I get I get differing differing opinions <laughs> on that. Yeah. yeah, people think I had brain damage to be riding a Harley without a helmet and in shorts and uh, yeah. a t-shirt. But no, no, yeah. no brain damage. No cranial damage. Uh, I had a little road rash and they had to sew my ear back on, but other than that it was uh, mm. uh, pretty minimal damage to the head. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny people say, wow, you were so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was lucky the day before when nothing yeah. happened. That's the day I was lucky. Yeah, it's funny how, how we attribute luck. Yeah, I have a dog, one leg, uh, broken uh, tail, one eye. His name is Lucky. Because yeah. <laughs> he's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, so, and then, and then you've got this other thing now, this mysterious childhood illness or, that only children have. It's called ganglioneuroblastoma, and it's normally a cancer found in 18-month-old children. It's the oldest person that they know that is that ever had it was 21 years old. So um, you're a medical anomaly. I'm the oldest living person to ever have had this uh, cancer. And I think other than infants, like only 42 people in the world have had it. Hmm. Uh, so the genetic researchers at um, Sloan Kettering are trying to find out where it came from or why I would have it, whether it was something that was dormant in my body for years mm. or whether I did something that made it uh, become it. active, triggered yeah. it or something. But uh, fortunately, I have a genetic, um, what the hell is it? It's uh, an ALK gene that is uh, abnormal. It's uh, mutated. And because of that, it acts like it's a lung cancer cell. And they've developed this treatment for lung cancer that's very effective because it's, it's specific to that gene. And so it doesn't attack the rest of your body. It just attacks that uh, particular gene and inhibits it from uh, getting nourishment. Mm. So they were able to um, 
get that medicine for me, uh, what they call off-label, where um, it's a um, clinical study that they right. had me involved in. And I've been taking the medicine, and uh, that was in 2013, so you know I'm still here. So I'm uh, surviving the, uh, the medicine and the, the cancer. And have they, uh, did they give you any, tell you what to expect, or is it all just purely we'll see what happens since it's such a rare case kind of wait and see what happens that's their uh, um, feeling or what they say I've learned more by going online and uh, mm. reading about the medicines I'm taking reading about the uh, the cancer itself and uh, I think I've learned much more that way than listening to the doctors right I know the medicine uh, loses its effectiveness after a period of time Mm. that cancer genes are very smart. They, if they aren't getting nourishment because of something, they can develop a way around that. And they develop so fast, you know, they evolve quickly. Mm. So the, that medicine becomes ineffective after a period of time. And uh, I couldn't really find out what period of time that was. It depends so much on the uh, yeah. person taking it, et cetera. Right, and also in your case, your cells aren't dividing anywhere near as quickly as an 18-month-old baby's are. No. So no. the whole timeline, you know, to your benefit, uh, yeah. is slowed down a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So we got off into all this because you said you don't believe in miracles. Um, so what, what do you believe in? What do you, what do you think's going on here? Life-wise, yeah. death-wise. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, the whole the whole question of miracles is is so much about how we frame it, right? Because it, it is kind of miraculous that this planet exists, that there's one planet we know of, you know, as far as we can see, as far as we can detect, which is hundreds of thousands of light years at this point. There's one planet that uh, has water that's, you know, the, the right temperature and the right distance from its sun and all that. And there are these conscious beings here looking around at shit and, you know, talking to each other and, and interacting in all these ways. To me, life itself is just fucking miraculous. Like, I remember reading uh, something that said, I think it was Einstein who said, you can look at life in one of two ways. Either nothing is miraculous or everything is. And I sort of vacillate between the two, depending on you know how conscious I am in yeah. the moment. But um, I wasn't raised in a, in the sort of religious. I feel like people who are raised in a religious context um, either buy it or reject it, and and there's a lot of baby and bathwater going on there, you know where. Um, yeah, you're right. Some people will, will reject parts of the religion, uh, especially the parts <laughs> dealing with adultery. And masturbation. <laughs> masturbation. <laughs> it's the yeah, first to go. Give up that early. <laughs> you know, let's face reality. Yeah. But um, then you can, I, I rejected, at, at this point, I've simply rejected the whole concept of um, a religion, a supreme being, a, right. another life. I believe there's a finality to death that when you die, the only thing that probably continues forever is the vibrations that you've created uh, in your life. Mm. Because as you know, vibrations continue on uh, in a diminished capacity pretty much forever. 
Really? So they, don't, they don't dissipate? Yeah, they do, but they never go away. Very they just slowly. get smaller and smaller. Right. It's conservation of energy, I guess. Yeah. Smaller, but... Spread out, just like spread the out. lake and yeah. the boat. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Um, so I think that's the only thing that survives our march through, uh, through Earth. And, you know, I think about the possibilities of, of scale. Are we uh, Horton Hears a Who a scale? Or are we, um, you know, massive creatures on a massive planet in a very small area? Uh, or are we, you know, just another, another uh, atom in in a larger structure mm. and you know what is our time frame here is it really a uh, incredible length of time or is this all occurring in a split second well that's the thing because when you're when you're looking at something that has no frame you know it's like like um in space there's no up or down Right. Yeah. But we talk about up and down all the time as if it means something, you know, but it only means something relative to the center of the earth and gravity and all that shit. Right. And time is the same and scale is the same. Like, yeah, yeah, we're really big compared to small things, but we're really small well, compared to big yeah. things. Yeah. And the fact is that there is no outer limit to how big things can be. And it seems there's actually no limit to how small things can be either. So that's why the concept of zero was so interesting in mathematics. You know, there were all these mathematical systems that had no zero. And yeah. then when you got the zero, finally there was a fixed point from which everything else can, can emanate, you know. But without that, everything, it's just building on water. Everything's flowing and moving everywhere. But I think about that, too. It's like, uh, yeah, what is, what is life? Life's long, life's short. Well, that, those two things mean nothing, really. Yeah, there's no scale to compare them to. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's no background. There's nothing for us to say, well, the Earth compared to something else has a much longer lifespan. You know, who knows? Right. Uh, who knows if the sun is just someone struck a match and th that the sun is just the head of the match. Right. And when they light the cigarette and put it out, we're doomed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's your lung cancer. Yeah. 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 yeah so, I, I mean, and, and another way, and this is, I think, this is where it, it's most interesting is where our, our ability to think about things, much less even talk about them, comes to a limit. Because... You know, it's like people who, there are the studies that show that in cultures that have a specific word referring to a specific shade of color, like let's say what we would call a burnt orange, right? Like a dark sort of orange. Some cultures have a word for that color. And in those people who speak that language can pick that color out of a, out of a photograph much more quickly mm -hmm. than we can. So we all see it in a way, but they see it clearer and sharper because their language has a word for it. So language actually shapes perception. You know what I mean? Whereas we think it's just a way of talking. It's not. It's a way of seeing and thinking and being, right? Um, well, think about that, uh, especially with color. There's nothing to say that you and I see this room in the same colors. Right. We just 
discuss them in the same colors because we've learned. Right. We've learned that's burgundy, that's red, that's white. But you know, you might look at that mattress and say, it's. You might see it as I would see a blazing red. Right. But we both say it's blue because that's what we've been taught. That's right. the word we have for it. Right. And interestingly, the the color, the word for blue didn't exist in ancient Greek, like in in, in the meta in uh, Ovid. You know, in um, the the Odyssey, the Odysseus, mm -hmm. and all that, there they that's why they said the wine red sea, right? They, there was no word for blue. They would describe the sky. They wouldn't. They, there was no blue. They wouldn't call it blue. And there's all this debate in scholarly uh, journals as to whether they saw blue, you know, or or if they just saw shades of gray or whatever. It's it's yeah. really confusing. Um, but what I was going to say is that. You know the linguistic limitations limit our 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 way of thinking about things. So we talk about you know is there life after death? Is there this or that? And we take it as if we have to choose from the options that are presented by language. Everything's an either or. Whereas I feel like it's my sense of what happens when we die is that it's like when a raindrop hits the ocean. It both ends and doesn't end you know what i mean mm -hmm. the yeah. the form the raindrop Ends. is gone yeah. but the water is there the water persists the water is cycling around and and so you say does that raindrop cease to exist well it depends what you mean right you know there's no now we're just talking about words but yeah. you know in a metaphor i like metaphors better because metaphors i think can capture meaning that goes beyond the words that we use so anyway, raindrops. So another big moment in your life, if, if I know correctly, because, you know, a lot of your life I know secondhand, either because I've heard stories or whatever, or because I was traveling when things happened to you. But a friend of yours, a good friend of yours, died in a plane explosion. Yeah, Mike, Mike Stevens, Mike, Mike Stevenson. Um, he was flying to... Uh, Australia to deliver a plane and uh, I was scheduled to go with him and business uh, kept me from doing that but he and another friend of mine took the plane on their way to California to have big tanks put in it so they could go across the ocean was it a jet no it was a turboprop Turbo. but uh, over Ohio for an unexplained reason the plane came apart in the air uh, it just started to disintegrate the tail first. And then, of course, once the tail goes, you have absolutely no control. So it went into a spiral until the wings popped off and then, then hit the ground. And that uh, that's not a thing where they had parachutes in the plane or anything? No, you can't. You, parachute in a plane, unless it's a plane that has ejectable doors and right. is, or an open cockpit, you can't get out, right. you know? Yeah. So, um, no, they just went down with the plane. And uh, Mike and Jay just ceased to exist at that point uh, or became part of the earth. I'm not sure <laughs> That raindrop yeah. hit the ocean pretty yeah. hard. Huh? Yeah. 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 So, uh, and so when was that? Oh, God. Um, it was in the 80s at some point, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 30 years ago, probably. 30 yeah. years ago. And did that yeah. strike you? I mean, was that a holy shit kind of moment for you, aside from losing your buddies? Yeah, I mean, Mike was my best friend. We talked every day. We, 
we went over the days we had with each other almost every day. You know, it was just a, a real close friendship. And of course, we both flew. We always went on flying adventures together, dive trips and, um, you know, cross-country trips all night. Just we had a, a really great time flying Was he together. the guy you went to Alaska with a few times? No, Alaska was... Uh, the guy that taught me to fly, I went to Alaska with him. And then the last two trips, I went on the company jet at the time we were doing the airplane business. Right. And we flew up on a company jet. That's nice. But, uh, you know, Mikey was uh, a real good pilot, liked to fly everything from seaplanes to uh, jets. He had a Falcon 10, which was one of the fastest personal jets uh, available. And, uh, and then we both owned seaplanes, which we liked to fly. But um, it, it never deterred me from flying. Actually, uh, when I heard about it, I was in a restaurant at an airport. And when I left the restaurant, I jumped in a plane, which happened to belong to Mike. It was a plane I was delivering for him. And I flew that back to my home airport just to, to be there to find out more news as it came in. But it never occurred to me not to fly the plane. It's just a total disconnect between that accident and what might happen to me. How long was that flight back to your home airport? Oh, 20 minutes. You were alone? Yeah. Yeah. That must have been an interesting uh, time. It was because I kept thinking of what would somehow... Could it be the wrong plane? Is there a possibility? You know, could could they have survived? Just all, everything goes through your mind. Yeah. But yet, in the back, I just remember thinking of all these things, and then I thought, why am I thinking of these things? I know the answer to all of them. You know, and I guess it's just hoping or wishing or uh, uh, something like that, because yeah. I just I knew that, that he was dead. Yeah, and. Uh, but again, my thought was flying the plane and getting back home so I could uh, uh, talk to his mother, to, uh, to Jay's wife, to everyone that was going to be involved, and they were all back in Annapolis. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was sad. I, I, I still miss him, and uh, uh, he was a good life friend. You know? Yeah. You said something that surprised me the other day. Um, yeah. You want to get that? Um, that's my uncle's phone. <laughs> it's not a submarine. <laughs> but it's, it's it was. Like, you expect to see a periscope pop up. Ready the depth charges. Yeah. And then possibly a <laughs> torpedo. <laughs> but you, you said to me something that surprised me. Uh, the other day, you said you've had very few male friends in your life. And that surprised me because you seem to me to be one of the most, like, man's man guys I know. You know, like, you know how to hang out with guys. You, you know how to deal with guys. You, you talk their language. I always feel like, I often feel like an imposter around a lot of guys. Um, you know, because I'm not the athlete. I'm not the, I can't fix the car. I, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot of macho shit. You know, I'll pull out my, 
my f travel or my porn award. Those are my, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those are what I got. But you know, like guys don't really, you know, or like I've been successful with women. I guess those are my, my credentials for impressing guys, right? Mm -hmm. But you've always struck me as a guy who just like impresses guys just by being who you are. And so when you said you haven't had a lot of men, male friends, that surprised me because well, I don't think you have it easy with dudes. But think about it, maybe impressing men, but what do I do when a guy says, you know, what was the score last night? And I'm thinking, I don't even know what last night was. Right. Or what about them Mets? Right. And I don't know who the Mets are and I don't give a damn. Yeah. Uh, or who Mezeroski or some of the newer people are, uh, the, the guy with the Deflategate. Uh, you know, I just don't know anything about that. And most guys do. So you think it's it's sports? It's, it's you sports just don't is a have big part of it. Yeah. Um, the other part of sports that I don't have is a lot of competitiveness. Right. I, I'm not someone that wants to win or to beat someone or to be better at at that. Right. Um, so I don't have that, which you find in a lot of guys. Um, and the other thing that that will turn me off with a guy immediately when I talk to him if, if they don't have respect for women. Right. If they, you know, use the slang terms derogatorily. I mean, if you use them in a fun way, you know, right. which we all do. Right. But if you're being derogatory or if you have that uh, inner dislike or hate for women, I don't want to be around a guy like that. Right. And uh, the other thing, I feel like an imposter when I'm at a party and someone comes up and says, oh, you know, where were you born? Pittsburgh. Oh, you must be a Steelers Steeler fan, fan. Yeah. and I'm not. I'm right. not. I'm not a Steeler fan, and I I hate to say, no, I'm not. Well, well, who do you follow? And I don't. Right. You know? Right. So, like you, I I don't enter the male world on the footing that the vast majority of men have. Right. Very few pilots in the world, uh, in my age bracket, you know, even uh, less. Uh, so there aren't a lot of guys that are, I can be impressed by the football lover because I'm a pilot, but I can't talk about piloting with them. Right. Uh, but if I find another pilot, we have a lot in common. Uh, diving, skiing, things like that. But again, that's a small uh, fraction of the men you come in contact with. Mm. Um, so I, I, I'm probably in the same situation that you see yourself in, uh, and we have our own skills uh, that are great, you know, and our life-altering skills that you and I have, uh, but they aren't mainstream. Yeah, yeah, and in some cases, they're they're they don't lend themselves to easy cocktail conversation. Exactly, they don't. Yeah, yeah, um, but with women. Flying impresses women, diving impresses women, uh, skiing, uh, knowing about those things, being able to fix an iron. Uh, lack of women interest in, in sports impresses women. And lack of interest in sports, exactly. You know, they say, God, my husband spends every <laughs> so Sunday boring. afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I remember reading it, it people listening to this podcast have heard me talk about this before, but it's one of my favorite quotes. It was an um, interview with some some great coach I don't remember if it was football or what sport it was but um, they said to him what's the key to what's the secret to being such a great coach and he said well you have to be smart enough to really understand the game 
but not smart enough to understand how little it all matters. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I thought, man, you can just apply that to pretty much anything in yeah. life, you know? You just you just want to be smart enough to figure it out, but don't get smarter than that or then you get into all sorts of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, or begin to think it's the all important thing. And so many people do in yeah. their, in their craft or in their world. Uh they put an importance on it that isn't really there. You know, it is for them but not for the world. Well, and that gets back into the, you know, how you think creates your world, right? You yeah. Know, if you're competitive, yeah. the world looks like a jungle. It's a really competitive place. But well, and, and here's another thing I think you and I have in common is this aversion to competitiveness. And yet I think in both cases, people could look at us and say, yeah, it's easy for you to say because you win normally. You know, like you're not competitive about women, let's say. No. But you've probably more successful with women than any guy you know. Yeah. And and it's hard to teach that because people who are trying to learn how to be with women are already in a mindset that makes it impossible for them to be relaxed. And the key is being relaxed. Yeah. I, I know this guy named Neil Strauss who wrote a very famous book called The Game, which is all about sort of a science of how to pick up women. There are all these research and all these techniques that you can use. And uh, the first time I was hanging out with him, we were talking about this and he said, I'll bet you had sex before you were 15, didn't you? I said, yeah, actually I did. How did you know that? And he said, well, you can always tell guys who had sex before they were 15 are relaxed around women. They, they're not intimidated, they're not freaked out, and so they continue to be successful with women their whole lives. Guys who don't have sex until their 20s are freaked out, and they need to learn techniques, you know, because yeah. they can't do it naturally. They're just, it's just too stressful, which is really fucked up. You know, we were t you and I were talking about this at lunch today, how we both had experiences with older girls when we were in our early teens that today would be considered criminal yeah you know and yet i i feel like that's a big part of the the reason that i'm i am relaxed around women they called them victims back then they called me a lucky bastard <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. i mean what kind of societies you know i mean the the boys are lining up to be victims yeah i, I don't really understand it yeah yeah, I was going somewhere with all that. I don't know where the hell it was, though. Oh, your, m money, your relationship with money. You, you've never really been motivated by it. I mean, you've yeah, had it. Yeah, I've had It's come and gone. It's a hell of a lot better having it than not, I'll tell you. <laughs> I've been rich, I've been poor. <laughs> I like rich I like better. Rich better. <laughs> yeah. But not for the sake of money. Right. You know, I don't get any thrill out of earning the money but I get a thrill out of the time it gives me to do something else right you know the time or the ability to, to own an airplane I mean my god I've owned an airplane most of my adult life mm. uh, because of money and because of the ability to do it right um, I've been able to you never made a living from an airplane though did you no no I made money on them because of buying and selling but right never made a living never flew for profit right um, no. Other yeah. than the, the arms and drug smuggling you said we shouldn't talk about. <laughs> yeah, let's keep that quiet. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I missed out on the drug smuggling. I have to say, honestly, if, if I would have, uh, if it would have been that time and I would have been here in Florida, I probably would have been involved in drug smuggling because I think it was a glorious time. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't. Yeah. I again repeat, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for anyone who may be listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I told you, I, I recently interviewed a guy who was, in a big way, he had a fleet of DC-3s, DC I think. DC-3s, yeah. yeah. He was, man. Yeah, interesting, interesting times. Um, but, okay, so money wasn't your motivation. So so your buddy... Uh, Mikey. Mikey. Mikey disappeared, and uh, how did that change the way you looked at your life? How did that, I mean, did that lead to any big decisions or reconsiderations? It made it easier for me to leave Maryland, I guess, you know, because he was part of my life and part of Maryland, and uh, with him gone, it was one less tie to a specific place. So, uh, it was after that, after Laura, had, my daughter, had uh, uh, graduated from college and was working that uh, my wife and I split up and, and I just jumped in my plane and flew to Florida. Mm. And uh, hell, that was 21 years ago now. And uh, it was a good move. It was, it was a great move. I wish I would have come here when I was 20 years old because it really is the land of opportunity down here. There's so much to do, so many areas to get into. I mean, everything from fishing and wildlife to uh, uh, this development uh, down here is phenomenal. Business keeps growing. Uh, tourism. I mean, there's so many things down here. Plus, it's sunny and warm mm -hmm. you know, and sultry. <laughs> it is sultry. Yeah, yeah there, there seems to be a lot of money sloshing around. There is a lot of money. Um, I think Naples has the largest concentration of millionaires or billionaires or whatever the measurement is today. Um, and mostly from the Midwest, a lot from uh, uh, very wealthy Midwestern families and businesses. Mm. Um, you know, the this airport handles more takeoff and landings than some of the large city airports in uh, any Sunday in during season. Right because all the private jets coming in and out to pick up or drop off their troops. Right. So people who listen to this podcast have heard of you because I talked about how you started that whole naked sex at dawn reader. Oh, thing. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so maybe I'll post that photo, the original photo of you and your two friends, if that's okay. I mean, it's already, oh. it's already up. It, or post that uh, YouTube, that the, little the video. video. That's, a, that's a funny video. All right, I'll yeah. post the video too. Yeah. Um, but uh, so part of, you know, you mentioned uh, getting divorced and, and, um, and, and, you know, one of the funny things about doing a podcast is, you know, or writing, you know, being a semi-public figure as I've become recently is my impulse is to just tell it like it is, you know? I'm, I'm mm -hmm. very unapologetic. But then you're talking about other people's lives too, and they never agreed to have their, you know, privacy uh, invaded. So I don't wanna ask you any question that would, you know, invade uh, anyone else's privacy, but it was part of, my feeling was that when you came to Florida, it was, you were more, um, how can I say? Like you weren't misrepresenting yourself. Like you weren't. Uh, 
I remember seeing you with three or four different women, and they all knew you had different, you know, there was no secrets. Exactly. I was totally honest. Uh, when I go out with a woman, I tell her, you know, I don't, I don't want to have a relationship. I, I don't want to just, you know, confine our seeing, seeing you only, and I don't expect the same from you. Uh, if, if that changes later, we'll talk about it. But, yeah, I was very honest with, uh, with all the women I dated. Was that hard to do initially? Did you think that was going to, like, ruin your chances to be with people? I didn't care. I just felt that I was so much more comfortable just being totally honest. And, you know, at that age, your memory starts to go a little bit, so you don't have to remember what I said because <laughs> you said the truth. Right. Right. And um, it's worked out fantastically. I mean, women are so much more appreciative if you tell them the truth. Mm. Uh, I had uh, several women that said, well, I, I won't go out with you then. And that was fine. But again, they knew the truth and they knew what uh, they were getting into. But other just said, you know, this is great. You know, I like that relationship. I like the ability to uh, uh, be honest with each other. I'll see you this weekend, but no, I'm going out somewhere uh, with somebody else, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was fine with me. Yeah. And Naples, the uh, demographics here, there's 12 women for every man in town. And most so, of them are losers. Yeah, most of those guys aren't <laughs> using their 12. So it was... <laughs> they're they're running around free. You, you can afford to have some say, I'm not going to date you under yeah. those circumstances. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I found the same thing. You know, when I was working on my PhD, which was about why uh, monogamy is unnatural for our species, mm -hmm. you know, that came up pretty early in any conversation I was having with, with women. And... Yeah, maybe maybe a third of them were like, okay, you know, that's too freaky for me. I'm not into that. But what I learned was that two things. I learned one that there's an incredible value in um, eliminating early people that aren't going to be long-term compatible anyway. Yes. We waste so much time trying to make it work with someone that we could have seen in the first hour. It wasn't going to work. Trying to go slowly to that point. Right. So nobody has stepped on or hurt yeah, or offended. Right. Yeah. Or because she's got nice tits or a beautiful right. smile. Well, and that's a little longer. I'll, <laughs> you'll go I'll invest a little time in that. You <laughs> But you see what I mean? It's like, you, you know, you're, you're, you're overlooking the obvious because you want it to work. And you're overlooking the fact that you already know it's not going to. And actually eliminating that early um, ends up creating far more opportunities than, it, than you lose. There's a huge net gain in doing that, even though it feels like a net loss, because what you're doing is giving them the opportunity to reject you immediately, which yeah. hurts, you know. But the other thing I learned is that women of quality, the kind of women I'm interested in, are far more appreciative of courage and integrity and uh, honesty. Th that's what they admire most in a man. And they're so tired of being lied to. They know they're being lied to. And they're so frustrated by the fact that they can't 
pin a guy down like I know he's gonna fuck me but will he call me tomorrow yeah, you know yeah. is he actually married yeah. and he's telling me he's not is he maybe he's bisexual or gay and he's pretending you know what's they, they, they don't know what's going on and so when a guy just says look here this is me this is it boom 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 take it or leave it they actually fucking love that a yeah. lot of them yeah. they feel comforted by it um, and then they can yeah. be uh, friends, uh, right. friends it's up with to them. benefits, right. uh, a sexual partner, right. uh, crazy women, uh, right. whatever they want to be. Right. Because yeah. you're actually, you know, it seems like a power move. You're saying, hey, baby, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. But really, it's also giving them power. Because you are saying take it or leave it. And she can yeah. take it or leave it, you know. So, yeah, I think that's the one piece of advice I give young young guys um, and I feel comfortable giving that is like figure out your non-negotiables and then don't negotiate. Yeah, you know? yeah. The one the things that aren't going to work for you, get off the table right away. Right, and and be honest about it and non-judgmental. It's not it's not uh, you know there's nothing wrong with her if she doesn't want that. She's got every right not to want that, you know. And be a man and take it. But then you know that's that's reality because that's where you're going to get to anyway. But you might waste twenty years and have kids in the process. Yeah, yeah. You so, had, uh, mentioned earlier about. Guys don't know how to pick up women or how yeah. to how to meet women. Uh, I discovered that that same thing, the brutal honesty. When I see a woman, like I went into the the beach club well, years ago, and I saw this woman who I just thought was incredibly attractive, nice smile, just beautiful, big boobs, and uh, she's surrounded by guys. But I just walked right up and pushed the guys aside, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and went right up to her. And all I did, and this works every time, you put your hand out and say, hi, I just wanted to in introduce myself. My name is Dan Carr. And that's it. You will get a response. You, you don't use any phony line. You don't use anything. I love your eyes. Because that will elicit some Tony response. Right. But if you introduce yourself, what it gets is the name of the person and a handshake. Right. And from there, you're on firm basis to expand on it. And uh, that woman, I'm a friend with her today. And a week after I met her, we went to Fantasy Fest in Key West. Um, and she's... <laughs> I was actually on a date with her when I met my wife, Corinna. <laughs> because I said to her then, I saw Corinna sitting at a table and she just looked incredibly beautiful. So I said to this uh, woman, would you mind if I just introduced myself to this uh, woman over there? And she said, oh no, she's very beautiful. So I did. But I think it's that honesty and just straightforwardness that gets you the best response. And, you know, nothing phony, no uh, canned lines or anything else. Yeah. Um, that's the way I met my, my Colombian bride. Uh, gosh, so many women just by looking at, and the other key thing is do not look at them 20 times before you go up to them. Right. Every then, time you look at them, they know. Right. And if you are staring and looking around corners and <laughs> oohing and awing or telling your friends and pointing at them, you may as well just hang it up because yeah. that's the end of it. Yeah. When you see them the first time, you never make eye contact again until you are on a beeline approaching them. And then that's, that's when the, you, you have the best chance of a nice, honest, 
productive meeting with a woman. Well, and it's spontaneous because you haven't given yourself a chance to fuck it up yet. Right. By thinking of what, <laughs> yeah. what am I going to yeah. say? What am I going to say? Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. People, like I, I got an email recently from someone or maybe it was on the Reddit page or whatever. And the guy was like, you know, I want to be a writer. So, you know, I, what's, some, what's some advice? Like I need advice. What books should I read about writing? And what should I, you know, what program should I use? And should I, you know, should I think about it before I write it? Or should I write a little and then think about the next part of it? And it's like, <laughs> dude, you want to write? Fucking write. write. Yeah, just <laughs> you know, write. just fucking write. Yeah, because you, the longer you think about it, the less likely it is you're ever going to do it. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some value in preparation. You're going on a trip, great, you know, okay, you need a backpack, whatever. But you start obsessing on what's the best backpack for going to Mexico, you know, in October, or should I get the other one? Is the weather, is the wet? Yeah. Fucking go, dude. Just Work go. it out when yeah. you're there. Figure it out later. Yeah. 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 Figure it out when you're there. So, okay, so we got, I wanted, I wanted to get your advice on uh, dealing with women because I know you're a, a natural at that. So we've covered that. Do you, what other advice, you, you've never had a son, you had a daughter. A daughter, yep. No Do you, son. Did you ever, uh, I mean, I know you're not someone who has regrets and your daughter's great and of course you have no regrets around her, but do you... Uh, do you ever do you ever miss having a son or do you think about that don't miss but think about it I think about how it would be if I had a son um, I've never tried to uh, put a miss uh, or you know missed out feeling on it um, right you know because as you know I was always like a, a summer father for uh, yeah. your cousins and, and me uh, yeah and you yeah we did you a took new trip I mean that's Fuck, that's the last canoe trip I was on. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a long time ago. I was, what, 13 or something. Yeah. yeah. But I took David in. I, uh, I still yeah. have a shame. Talk about feeling like an imposter. <laughs> Maybe it all started on that canoe trip. Because I don't know if you remember, but it was it was you and a buddy of yours and his son and me. Yes. Yeah. And... Part of it, it was in Long Lake and Long Lake Crystal. and a chain of lakes. Yeah, yeah. there were yeah. all these lakes in upstate New York. Really beautiful. And I had this fucking beanie hat, this goofy little like hippie hat, like uh, you know, like the guy on uh, Scooby Doo would wear that kind of hat, that floppy, goofy little hat. <laughs> when you put the canoe, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were we were carrying the canoes, and the canoe it hurt my head so bad. And I was, I think I was crying. And you drove I, that bean, right? Your <laughs> yeah, there was a button on the top of the hat and we didn't, I don't know why I didn't know. <laughs> so we were walking for, I don't know how long, but it was a long time. And I was just dying that hurt so bad. Yeah. And I felt like such a loser because the other kid was like, I don't know, it's not so heavy. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> he, he didn't have a bean on his head. <laughs> he didn't have a button <laughs> driven into the top of his skull. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's funny. I mean, I've always been sort of a fuck up in those, in those macho situations. Uh, like when I worked in those garages, I fucked up. I destroyed like three cars. I totaled cars. Um, just by being an idiot. Like one, I dropped it off the lift because I lined up the feet wrong and it yeah. was just like a little bit on the frame of this truck. And uh, when it when the lift reached the top and it sort of shook a little, the whole thing crashed down and the transmission case cracked. And 
and then I I totaled another one that was uh, in the on the back of the tow truck because I had picked it up from the back. And, and steering uh, wheels were loose. Yeah, <laughs> it was parked in neutral. I thought it was yeah. in park. The guy didn't tell me he left it in neutral. Yeah, so it swung into oncoming traffic, and a van hit it head on, smashed it. Yeah. Well, that wasn't your forte. It's no, just that but simple. I, I liked it. I mean, I, I, what I liked was, you know, what we were referring to earlier. I like doing work where you, you can look at it and it's done. You yeah. know, and you did it. That, I mean, I like working in restaurants too. Or, you know, you're just like working, 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 and at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, okay, I, you know, I did. 40 tables, you know, that's a lot of work. I feel it. I'm tired. I, I spent energy. Yeah. I like that kind of work. And there's, you know, and, you know, I feel honored to be able to write for a living and people give enough of a shit of what I'm thinking that they'll pay for it. Um, but it's physically, there's no, it's not like painting a room where you look at the wall and like that wasn't painted yesterday and now it is, you know. But don't you get that when the book's finished and you look back and you're holding it in your hands and you you know, reread it and look through it and think of how you have taken all these thoughts and melded them together into a story, especially a story that other people will find interesting. I mean, that's a yeah. finished product. It is, yeah. it is, but the the lag between the work and the and the product and is seeing it, so yeah, you're big. Right. You're right, yeah. Yeah, it's the immediacy that uh, I find really fulfilling. So I actually, most writers hate doing public appearances because they're introverts and they just like working alone in a room, you know. I'm the opposite. I I much prefer being on stage in front of a thousand people to sitting alone in a room, you know, writing. Uh, so I actually do the writing in order to, to sort of get the chance get stage, to do the public yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's sort of, uh, which is why I've been marketing a book for like five years that I haven't written yet. <laughs> got a little ahead of myself there. It's like putting paint samples on the wall for five years <laughs> till ultimately the room is painted yeah, with exactly, samples. With samples, that's yeah. pretty much what my editor thinks. Yeah. Um, okay, so have we, have we missed something? I'm sure we've missed a million things, but we've covered flying a little bit. We've covered uh, practical work, relationships with women, big pivotal moments in your life. Is there anything else that uh, glaring exceptions we've left off? No, not really. I mean, I've, I've had an interesting life. Uh, I was thinking about my resume the other day. I can't really write one resume because yeah. I've had so many uh, endeavors. Yeah. And um, they're all good. You know, they all added and subtracted and uh, made my life what it is. But you, yeah, I, you've had a lot of your own. Like, you, what was that toy company you had? Oh, Mountain Toy Makers. Mountain Toy Makers. Yeah, there's the toys right up there. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. The, uh, that little round one, that was my yeah. favorite. Crazy yeah. wheels. Crazy wheels. So those, these are toys that were made entirely of wood with no metal parts so kids could stick them in their mouths and they wouldn't. Right, yeah. They were safe for kids and non-toxic. And that was, that must have been in the 70s. 70s, yeah, when I was in the Adirondacks. I sold that to my partner when the company moved me to Chicago because Chicago toy makers doesn't sound as good as my, mountain toy makers, you know. So, uh, yeah, that bit, and it survived. My partner then sold it to another couple, and they kept it going for years. But I think the toys have changed a little bit. At that time, wooden toys were in big demand. Uh, 
it was fun. I mean, we uh, created them all ourselves and uh, created the whole um, method of putting them together. And when our business got so big that we couldn't assemble enough, we actually used uh, sheltered workshops uh, where uh, challenged uh, people would put the cars together for us. Like mentally challenged? Mentally physically, physically challenged oh, that's uh, great. people. And, uh, you know, they got paid based on the number of uh, cars they could put together for us. Mm. But they loved it. I mean, they, the administrator said that, you know, they just lined up for those jobs because they're all putting toys together and they really enjoyed it. So, and you were working in a big mine up there, right? You worked, your yes, personnel yeah. director or something? Personnel director of uh, National Lead Mine. It was a big mine in the Adirondacks. Right. Yeah, so. And then you went to Chicago for what, like a, an office job? I went to Chicago with a spin-off from that same company called Dutch Boy Paints, right. which is a pretty well-known brand. And we set up a, an office in a Northfield, Illinois, for Dutch Boy Inc., which uh, was the company that bought the brand and then changed their name to Dutch Boy Inc. And I worked for that company, but then I went back again to National Lead Company. Uh, worked for them at Baltimore Paint and Chemical, and then went back to Albany, New York, because we we made radioactive bullets up there. We were getting in trouble with the law for that. So uh, from there, I went to New York City and worked in the corporate office. Um, and then, when I could no longer stand working in New York City, uh, I resigned and moved myself and my family to Annapolis, and we started a uh, import kitchen and bath business. Oh, that's right, the, the Pogan the Pogan Pole, yeah. High-end German kitchens. Yeah. Right. Now, how the hell did that happen? Well, they just had opened uh, a small store, and a, a friend of mine got involved in it, and he called me, and he said, you know, he needed some help in this business, mm. And I always liked Annapolis and thought it would be fun to move there. Oh, that's why Annapolis. Okay. Yeah. I got you. So, right. um, yeah, it's a beautiful town. I moved down there. We got the business going, and then we split the business. He was more of a uh, designer of elaborate exotic kitchens. And I found the business was best in what they call multifamily businesses, like a condo development on Ocean City, Maryland, mm. there'd be uh, 64 units. Right. So I could sell 64 kitchens, pretty much the same design, right. uh, with owner-desired uh, upgrades. Did you do installations as well? Yeah, I had a whole crew. I had, at one point, like 24 guys doing installations for wow. me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, several designers, too, that would uh, uh, do the initial kitchens. Somewhere around there, you were also selling string bikinis. Yeah, that, that was, oh, uh, that was a, when the hell was that? It was around the time I was with Peggy, I think. Um, or maybe just, no, I think it was, because I think you gave her. Oh, what, when I came back from Chicago, we bought a house on the Chesapeake Bay with a beach. And I had the seaplane on the beach in front of the house. And um, I had a really good um, 
separation package from Dutch Boy, so I had probably about a year and a half I could hang out and not do anything, so, right. which I did. Um, but I, I'd fly places in the seaplane, and I got to thinking, you know, maybe I could make some money to use the seaplane. Yeah. So I would go to uh, these boat shows in Annapolis, which are pretty worldwide boat shows, pretty famous, and I'd come across products and ask the people if I could represent them to waterfront businesses, marinas mostly. And I had a, a bunch of things, um, multi-list yacht sales, um, additives for uh, marine fuel, um, rubber boats, Metzler rubber rafts. Oh, um, yeah, I remember the rubber raft thing too. Yeah. yeah. And then I came across this woman that had developed bikini in a bag that was a, a string bikini that could be tied 18 different ways, right. made of lycra in a little colored bag. And I was, of course, fascinated <laughs> by the thought of that, that bikini. And um, we took on the line, it was around Christmas, and we went to one marina and I told them these would make great decorations for a Christmas tree. So they did, they put a tree in their store and had to string bikinis as bulbs. Right. And uh, they had fantastic sales from it. And uh, they sold them on the basis that any guy with a boat should keep three or four of these on the boat as spares, you know? Right. Because they fit all. You have a friend on the boat and <coughs> they didn't bring their, their suit, yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we sold uh, just a bunch of them. And then I was lured back into uh, working for the company again because mm. they reinstated my seniority and uh, a lot of things. So I had to give up my wild seaplane. But that is when, uh, we were talking about this the other day, I was chosen as one of the five best photographers in the state of Maryland right? Uh, from a juried exhibit. And it was all from uh, shots taken from the seaplane. Right. That's my phone again, but we'll let it go. Um, and that was interesting because I hadn't even owned a camera until several months before that, <laughs> that I was traded for putting uh, some lights on a guy's dock. He had this old Nikon. He said, hey, I'll give you this camera. All right. So I became a famous photographer for a very short period of time. You talk about being a, an, an imposter. imposter. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, that's, that's right up there with my <laughs> porn award. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. Now, here's another thing that that uh, you and I have in common, and uh, maybe you should let's see what your response to this is. I think a lot of people, not necessarily a lot of people listening to this because they're cool, but a lot of people would listen to us and say, "You're a couple old creeps. You're old perverts. You know, objectifying women, and you know, all you care about is you know chasing women around or whatever." I don't. I mean, I don't mean to put words in their mouths, but you know what I'm talking about. A womanizer, they would say. A womanizer, and yeah. Now, uh, you know, you've been very clear that you're, you know, you've been very honest, and that's actually worked to your advantage, and so on and so forth. But what do you? I mean, you must get leery looks from people, and you know, and judgmental kind of vibe from people. Obviously, you don't give a shit. But what would you say to somebody who has that kind of? Um, you know, who sees you that way or sees me that way or whomever. Well, I think they're totally wrong to, to judge anybody that way. 
And uh, in, in my situation and in yours, we just love women. I mean, we don't objectify, we love them. We love everything about them, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, we just love women. And yeah. they're pretty much more, more our group of friends than men. Yeah. And, and that's just our lifestyle. Um, yeah, I love women and I, I like the way they look physically. Uh, I, I never have said, oh, I, you know, I, I love you for <laughs> your peace of mind or something. <laughs> it's, um, it's just very natural for me. But, uh, and to be with younger women, that's something that for some reason I've had the ability to be with uh, younger, beautiful women. And um, I've been openly criticized in Key West. There's a club called uh, Kevin, uh, Irish Kevins. And they always have guys playing the dueling pianos. And when people walk in, they always make comments about, you know, who walks in. Well, I went in there one time with my then Colombian uh, bride oh, right. and her girlfriend. Who, by the way, is just stunningly gorgeous. I, I mean. Stunningly gorgeous. Yeah. 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 And much younger, I mean, by 37 years, I think. I mean, much, much younger. But uh, when we walked in, the guys, they both stopped playing, so there was silence. And, and the one guy got on the mic and he said, isn't it nice when Grandpa <laughs> takes, takes his granddaughters out for a night in Key West? <laughs> so there there was no question about what was on his mind. <laughs> and now everybody else is enjoying it. Right, right. But other than that, you know, I've, I mean, I brought Oleana out to California to meet the family. Right. And uh, my daughter, who was 10 years older than her, said she was one of the nicest girls I ever dated. You know? Yeah. So. Do you feel defensive about it at all? I can be, I mean, I'll defend if anyone uh, were to challenge me on it, uh, I would certainly defend my actions, but I don't feel, I mean, unless somebody else brings it up, I don't even think about it. Right. Uh, you know, my wife uh, now is 20 years younger than me, and unless someone mentions that, I, I just think of her as being my wife, not, not 20 years younger, older, whatever, you know? Right. Have you ever been jealous, possessive, that kind of energy? Is it, no. Have you outgrown no, it or you just no, never felt it? Just never really felt it. So uh, even when you were married, because your ex-wife, my aunt, is another absolutely gorgeous woman. I mean, she was, I'm sure, getting hit on constantly. It never bothered you? No, no. It just was, no, it was fine. Um I, I would be upset, not jealous, but like if there was something going on that, uh, or I thought was going on, I'd be upset that that was going on, but not in the sense of a jealous thing, that somebody was trying to take my wife or have sex with my wife. Uh, it was more of a contractual or mechanical feeling that, uh, you know, something that could interfere with my relationship was uh, going on right but not a sexual thing right uh, uh, which i consider to be more the the jealousy thing yeah yeah i think you you and i both uh see relationships in a non-zero-sum way in other words that 
someone else can get something that isn't taking anything away from me. Yes. You know, exactly. there's not there's yeah. not a, a set amount of whatever it is, attraction, you know, the attention from attractive women or, you know, whatever. It's like I, I've never felt that, like, there's not enough to go around kind of feeling, you know. I think I think a lot of the anxiety that people feel around that, around relationships, comes from the fact that we live in this economic world where everything is zero-sum. You know, there's never enough. There's not enough. You have to get yours and hold on to it and protect it and, you know. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the world as being uh, plentiful and, you know, generous, it's a very different kind of thing. Like, you know, then you're not so worried about losing. What are you losing? Who, it's okay. There's more. You know, there's always more. Yeah, there's there's more and there's different and there's there's people that will provide something in your life that, that you're not currently getting. And that's true for your 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 wife, your girlfriend, whatever. Uh, there's no reason to be jealous if if someone is stimulating her in a way you aren't or in a way you are there's still no reason it isn't yeah. you're losing anything you know? right right yeah and in fact you may be gaining something uh you know by being the kind of guy that allows her to have those things and there are very few guys that allow you know that can whose uh, way of looking at relationships allows Freedom yeah, for, for the, the openness. Other, yeah, yeah, the other person. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I, I mean, we could keep talking for hours, but uh, I think we've covered most of the the bases that I had in mind. Uh, thanks, man. All right, enjoyed it. <laughs> Did you, young Chris? <laughs> <laughs> not, not so young anymore. Yeah. What, what was it? Let me ask you that. Like, get, get this on on the record here, because you've known me my whole life. Yeah. Did you like when I was a little kid? Did you sort of like when you look at me now, do you think, yeah, I could see that. I saw that coming. You know? No, no, no. As a little kid, you didn't exhibit any of the uh, um, lifestyle you have now. I mean, you didn't exhibit that uh, adventurous spirit as a little kid. Well, that's because there was a button in my head. It <laughs> <laughs> could be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was not my finest hour, that I have to the say. on-off button. <laughs> that could be, but no, I did. I w actually was, uh, I was really pleased to hear that right after college, you just went off into the world. Yeah. I thought, yeah, well, that takes balls. You know, you, you, you can't just go off in the world without having a lot of... Um, um, self-confidence because you know you're by yourself going into the world and I, I was amazed at that and I was pleased I thought good good Chris uh, you know he got he got out he jumped ship yeah so you didn't but you were surprised you, you didn't think that would uh... no I, I, I guess I was surprised too I that wasn't the direction I was going until you know that my junior year in college when I hitchhiked to Alaska, and that changed everything. You know, I, I met so many people uh, who were, you know, honestly, who were people like you, people who knew how to build things, knew how to fix things, were very, um, you know, good with their hands, knew how to do shit, and and you know, I was on the track to be you get a PhD at Oxford and be a pompous asshole professor somewhere, and. And those people were so nice to me. And I, I sort of, you know how sometimes you watch yourself, 
you know, you you see yourself, yourself from a, the, the corner, yeah. And I know. and I just saw like they're really nice to me. They they pick me up on the highway, take me home, and give me dinner, and let me sleep on their sofa, and trust me not to steal their shit or you know whatever. And and I'm like sort of looking down on them, and and I was looking down on myself, and I I realized what a dick I was becoming, you know, and that just really really shocked me in a way you know and uh yeah it's it's uh well when you were a kid i kind of thought you'd be an academic that you'd you know get all good grades everywhere and uh you know you'd be a goody two-shoes like your mama (laughs) (laughs) and i love your mama you know i mean there's no better woman in this world but she was a goody two-shoes yeah you know the nuns loved her and if the nuns love someone they're goody two-shoes yeah yeah um but, um, you know, I saw you as, as kind of a kid that was going to just go with a- academics and uh, right. kind of be, as you said, the college professor. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, surprise to everybody. Yeah. Here yeah. we are. And I think uh, it was a great turn for you to uh, get out and see the world. And certainly it's been good for everybody else, too, because... Uh, I wasn't you, around. You weren't around. <laughs> but yeah, you've done some interesting things, you know? Yeah. Did you travel much out of the country? I know you travel to um, the U.S. a lot. A little bit. I've been to, to Italy, to Spain, to England, to Germany three times. Oh, right. To, yeah. uh, Bars- no, to uh, where is that? Uh, the underwater country, uh, Netherlands. Netherlands, yeah. Right. Uh, been to South America, to, to Ecuador, to right. Costa Rica, yeah. to... Uh, but that's Argentina. all like in the last 10 or 15 years, right? Yes. Early on, no. I traveled in the U.S. Right. Uh, and when I had the airplanes, I, I've been to every state in the U.S., including Alaska, except right. Hawaii. Right. Um, but I've flown pretty much to or through every state. Um, but I wasn't out of the country much. Yeah. Canada, of course, for skiing and such. Yeah. Mexico. <laughs> to buy trinkets. <laughs> by right. we'll save that for another podcast uh hey thanks for doing this uncle dan enjoyed it it's my uncle dan ladies and gentlemen thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com or fundwhatyoulove.com on either of which you can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month five bucks a month ten bucks a month or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more or you can give nothing if you don't have any cash don't worry about it other people are covering your load so you're going to be good just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends the other way you can support the podcast is is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page, ChrisRyanPhD.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there. 
uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L. A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground